0: real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. For a century and a half, Detective Nick Power was celebrated as Canada's Sherlock Holmes, a man who not only could solve a mystery with nearly inhuman speed, but most significantly foiled a plot to assassinate the third in line to the British throne. Power was a media hound, and in conjunction with friendly reporters, never hesitated to use the headlines to promote his own story. All of this played into the creation of one of the most sensational police stories in Canadian history, a story that had all the makings of a legend, yet proved to be quite the opposite. This is Season 7, Episode 12 Nick Power, the Bad Detective. Today's book recommendation is titled The Bad Detective, and it's written by Bob Gordon, and it was published by Benavallon Books in 2021, and this is the story of Nick Power. I highly recommend it. The 1880s was a period of great anxiety for many within the British Empire. It seemed like throughout the European world itself, stabbings, shootings, terrorist bombing campaigns were all a constant feature of daily life, one that was reported widely in the media of the day. In Great Britain in particular, there was an increasingly radical nationalist opposition to English rule in Ireland. Now, while not all opposition was violent, Many radicals, many separatists, many independent-minded folk were turning to the more violent Irish Republican Brotherhood, who sought to utilize terrorism to achieve their political ends of independence. In 1881, for instance, four different bombings erupted in a span of six months, and these attacks dominated not just the news cycle in England, but around the British Empire, including the young Dominion of Canada. But this chaos wasn't just in Great Britain. That same year, Tsar Alexander II of Russia was assassinated when explosive-throwing anarchists caught him as he traveled towards a riding academy in St. Petersburg. The next year, a pistol-wielding assassin was caught attempting to kill Queen Victoria, and in Dublin that same year, two British politicians were murdered in Phoenix Park. In 1883, more bombings rocked London. If one was reading the newspapers, even in Halifax, Nova Scotia, one would think that threats were everywhere, as headlines throughout the British Empire reported extensively and in detail on these various attacks. One of the most common weapons for many of these terrorists was dynamite, Invented in 1867 by, ironically, Alfred Nobel of the Nobel Peace Prize, this revolutionary explosive invention meant that a single stick of dynamite provided a stable, powerful, and easily transportable explosive device as opposed to something like a keg of black powder. Dynamite quickly became an important commodity as it was sought all over the world by almost all mining and railway operations, and of course, those bent on violence towards other people. In particular, the news of Irish extremism struck a deep chord in the young provinces throughout Canada. In fact, Canada had already faced its own violent Irish republicanism in the form of the Fenian Brotherhood. Between 1866 and 1871, the Fenians attempted four different attacks on what would become Canadian soil. This even included a pitched battle at Ridgeway on the Niagara Peninsula. As well, in the spring of 1866, 700 Fenians even threatened Campobello Island in New Brunswick, about 50 miles from the southern tip of Nova Scotia. In 1868, Canadian politician Thomas Darcy McGee was even killed by a Fenian assassin. We covered this assassination back in Season 4, Episode 7. While the Fenian threat officially ended in the 1870s, the memory of the Fenians remained very powerful throughout the Canadian provinces. And as Irish extremists waged a terrorist campaign against London, These memories surfaced very easily. In many ways, Fenians remained the boogeyman for many Canadians for much of the 19th century, and it was certainly palpable in 1883 Halifax, and it was certainly a well-known boogeyman to Irish Catholic detective Nick Power. Nicholas Power was an Irish-Roman Catholic police officer. He had served in the Royal Navy and then settled in Halifax, soon becoming a police officer. He was not sympathetic to the Irish Republican cause. In fact, he would be considered a royalist by almost every means and was very much aware of the long history of Fenianism and Irish Republicanism and the threats these movements posed. Power joined the Halifax Police Department back in 1864, and in 1874 he made sergeant and finally was promoted to detective in 1881 he was quite an imposing figure he was a large man about 280 pounds 6 foot 4 and because of this was quite intimidating and handy in a fight yet he never carried any sort of large serious weapon except for a leather sap basically a small leather club filled with a metal bar or rod. Now, he could do significant damage with this sap. He was also always impeccably dressed, especially once he took on the plain clothes role of a Halifax detective. In August of 1883, HMS Canada steamed into Halifax Harbor, carrying on board the 18-year-old Prince George, the future king of England, but at the time, third in line to the British throne. The prince had been in the navy since the age of 12, when he began serving on the cadet training ship HMS Britannia. By 1883, the prince was a midshipman, effectively an apprentice officer, or as they used to say, young gentleman in training for Her Majesty's Navy. There was much celebration in Halifax and the rest of the young country when HMS Canada docked and the young prince disembarked as he was set to go on a tour of the new dominion. He, along with his sister Prince Louise, Duchess of Argyle, spent a short time in Halifax before heading to Quebec City, then to Ottawa, Toronto, Coburg, Kingston, Hamilton, Niagara-on-the-Lake, as well as Niagara Falls, and by October returned to Halifax. All the while that he was doing the tour, one of the more remarkable cases in Canadian history had apparently taken place. Detective Power, intent on ensuring the safety of the prince while he was on tour, set out to do a round of local hotels and boarding houses, scanning the guest registers looking for any suspicious characters, interviewing the owners and operators about the comings and goings of anybody and everybody. He was strolling down the wooden sidewalks of Barrington Street when he stopped at 277, the Parker House Hotel. The hotel was owned by a man named John Creelman, and the hotel occupied the upper stories above the large merchant store of McMurray & Company. Creelman handed over the guest register to Power when requested, and Power settled on two names in particular, William Breckton and James Holmes. American, from Boston specifically, Irish-sounding names, and Power thought most likely even Catholic. Power requested access to their rooms and, of course, was granted it. You need to understand that this was in the pre-warrant age. Police could simply just enter a residence on the slightest suspicion. Upon entry into the room, Power uncovered a red suitcase, which he opened, and to his consternation found dynamite, fuses, an alarm clock, and what he reported as all sorts of components to make some sort of timed explosive. This was enough for Power to arrest the two occupants of the room— and by the end of that day, both Breckton and Holmes were in the Halifax Jail on Spring Garden Road. The next day, Power and one of his colleagues returned to the room, where they found more explosive-related paraphernalia. As Power told the media, and I quote, There were packages of dynamite, some fuse, clothing, a clock, some lead, a saw, hammer, a lump of grease... Some copper wire and other articles. End quote. As Power confessed to a local friendly journalist, it was clear that they were making a bomb similar to those being used by Irish Republicans back in Great Britain. Further evidence would uncover itself when Power searched the arrested pair and found a ticket for checked baggage at the Intercontinental Railway Depot on North Street. Power informed another friendly journalist at the Herald, Power had a very good relationship with the Herald, that when he opened this checked baggage, there was a complete suit of rubber, what at the time was known as a diving skirt or swimming suit, effectively an outfit that would allow someone to float underwater for some time. Power let it be known to the press That the pair had arrived in Halifax weeks earlier, had seemingly had plenty of money, and had even hired a boat for a tour of the harbor. And finally, Power testified that the men had indeed confessed to him their intended dastardly deed when he, and only he, was alone with them. Detective Power then announced that it was clear, with all of these pieces of evidence combined... These men were clearly Fenians, Fenian bombers, intent on destroying HMS Canada with the prints on it. And the story ran in the Halifax newspapers as such. By late October, the news of this foiled bomb plot had gone beyond Halifax. The Globe reported on how power had stopped these Fenian assassins. Soon, word had gotten all the way back to London about the detective who had saved the prince. As far as everyone was concerned, Power was the man who foiled the Fenian bomb plot against the third in line to the throne. Power would even end up becoming chief of the Halifax police in 1907. In 1912, Prince George, now seated on the throne as George V, would award the King's Police Medal to Power for special services to royalty, And for the detective's entire career, until his death, he was known as the man who saved the prince. Eight years after Power foiled the supposed Fenian bomb plot, Sherlock Holmes made his first appearance in a short story in the magazine The Strand. And it didn't take long before people began to call Detective Nicholas Power Canada's Sherlock Holmes. But had he really foiled a Fenian plot? We'll find out after the break. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from CCH, look no further. Sign up for Patreon today. All you need to do is donate one or two bucks to the podcast via Patreon And you can access all our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content to get in the way. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Sign up today. And now back to our regularly scheduled program. Okay, so let's begin by breaking down this case. Looking at the possession of dynamite. While dynamite was certainly used in a variety of different terrorist attacks and foiled plots against government officials and such, it was also not that uncommon for people to possess and transport it. In fact, right on Lower Water Street was a store that sold dynamite and detonators and fuses, etc. You see, miners in particular were most commonly seen carrying such goods. You see, miners were often expected to provide their own tools and kit when heading to a mining camp, field, or operation, and this, of course, included dynamite. It was often the case that the sale of dynamite on site meant the purchase of overpriced dynamite that was of poor quality, so it was very much in the interest of a traveling miner to buy and carry his own. In fact, The possession of dynamite was quite unregulated in Canada and the United States. It could legally be transported across the border as long as the owner paid tax on it. So where could a couple of young men with dynamite be going? Well, there were a number of gold fields throughout Nova Scotia at this time. The province had experienced its first gold rush from 1861 to about 1874, And in the late 1890s, a second gold rush exploded, this time fueled by much larger mining companies. Now, while the two suspects were arrested in between the two main gold rushes in the province, it was still not at all unlikely that miners would continue to be heading out into the gold fields fully equipped to stake their claim or to do so on behalf of a larger corporation. However where we really see this supposed Fenian plot fall apart, was in the actual sentencing of the two men. On the 8th of May, 1884, a small article in the Morning Herald read, and I quote, The Dynamiters Sentenced. This article detailed how the two men arrested by power were found guilty of dynamite smuggling and sentenced to six months. That was it, though. No mention was made of a plot to assassinate the prince, or to blow up a boat, or of Fenians, or to attack anyone at all. The court basically threw out all of Powers' claims. As well, remember that supposed diving skirt found by Power? Well, that had disappeared. The prosecution was never able to find it to bring it to trial, if it ever actually existed. It seems unlikely given the state of rubber, fabric industries and general manufacturing at the time that an actual rubberized, sealed diving suit was to have been in the possession of a couple of itinerant miners in the first place. Regardless, whether it existed or not, the prosecution never had it and nobody but power seemed to have seen it. The simple fact is that if Breckton and Holmes were even remotely suspected of attempting to assassinate a royal, they would not have received what at the time was a fairly light sentence. Even their landlord admitted that they openly stated they were off to the goldfields. This does not seem like a fabricated alibi, but just the honest truth. The bottom line is power made it all up. And in the aftermath of the actual sentencing, barely a mention of the whole case could be found in the Halifax newspapers. These are the same ones who had so sensationally reported on Detective Power foiling a plot against the prince. As one author writes, and I quote, All that remained was a strongly held memory that the headlines had touted Power's spectacular arrest of Fenian bombers. The simple fact is the newspapers reported it, the public believed it, and soon it became remembered as truth, regardless of what the Nova Scotia justice system settled on. What's even wilder is that the story persisted as truth for nearly 150 years. His retirement speech, a year and a half after becoming chief of Halifax Police, highlighted this case. His obituaries in 1938 continued to promote the accepted story. Even as late as 2010, an article in the Chronicle Herald Weekly Magazine published the story as gospel. Power understood the power of the media. He used it to create his own foundational myth, and the media embraced him during an age of hyper-sensationalism. The old quote, if it bleeds, it leads, was used extensively by the detective. That was the motto of the day, and Power played right into it. He created and fabricated his own reputation as Canada's Sherlock Holmes, despite clear evidence that this was not the case. And his reputation persisted for so long that the story became fact, and his legend grew with every retelling. And for 150 years, fact and fiction were one and the same. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find me on Twitter at at DocBoris, that's D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S, and you can find this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon, as well as on all podcast platforms. And feel free to leave us a comment and a rating. We love to hear from you. Stay cool, friends.